we will have coffee. Oh, okay. Let you know. oh, great. Um, I, I, I feel very bad about sending you out here at the crack of dawn with no coffee. Uh, no problem. Well, I'll just read this out. Get it on the record. Okay, sure. Heather O'Donnell grew up in the library stacks and bookstore aisles of suburban Delaware. In 1989, she moved to New York City, where she studied English at Columbia and held down a series of bookish jobs on the side, working the cash register at the Strand, shelving photo books in the Avery Library, sifting the slush pile at Grand Street. Grand Street is a publisher? Grand Street is a uh, literary magazine. Ah, okay. While writing her doctoral dissertation in the Yale English Department, Heather worked as a curatorial assistant at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. From 2001 to 2004, she joined the Princeton Society of Fellows, then left academia to pursue the rare book trade full time. For seven years, she worked as a bookseller in the New York Gallery of Bauman's Rare Books dealing in a wide range of material from incunabula to modern firsts. In the fall of 2011, she founded Honey and Wax Booksellers in Brooklyn. In 2017, she and Rebecca Romney established the annual Honey and Wax Book Collecting Prize of $1,000 for a young woman book collector. Heather is a member of the Grolier Club, the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers, and a graduate of the Colorado... I think you're teaching there now, aren't you? I am on the faculty there now, Okay, yes. But I started as a student. I see. Very good. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you so much for having me. You studied English at Columbia. Who's your favorite author? Ah, I think that when I was at Columbia, I probably would have said William Faulkner, and I still do love William Faulkner. Um, I think that as I get older, I have less and less of a favorite author, and uh, and just more favorite books. <laughs> and why is that? I don't know. I, I guess uh, my intense personal identification with individual people has kind of lessened, and I'm more willing to listen to a variety of uh, variety of perspectives. So is that uh, reflected in your collecting? So you go after specific books rather than completing authors? I think that's certainly true. I mean, of course, I do work on, you know, private collections that are completist and, and you know, do my best to, uh, to make that happen. But I would say that I tend to, uh, in my own buying for stock and just in terms of what interests me, be more interested in unusual things that don't necessarily uh, fit the standard bibliographies. So do you find that uh, you were being requested to be a completist on behalf of your clients more so now or less? No, I would or... say less so. I yeah. think that, that in general people tend now to feel a little more free in their collecting. Um, and also, with the major authors, being a completist typically involves having to spend an enormous amount of money yeah. for the early books. So yeah. unless you're really down for that, um, most people are happy to have, you know, their favorite title or, you know, one or two representative titles of their favorite author and then go somewhere else. Okay. 
So you find that uh, people are collecting high spots as much as they used to, or exploring uh, un untilled terrain? Well, I certainly, I you know, I do sell high spots, and I'm grateful for high spots because they pay the rent. But I do think that high spot collecting, because it has become so unaffordable for all but a very small percentage of people and institutions, I think a lot of people have just gotten a bit more creative and flexible in terms of thinking about what they'd enjoy collecting and what kind of contribution they might be able to make in collecting, which typically isn't collecting the high spots since everyone already knows what they are yeah, and they're already well represented institutionally. It's kind of unimaginative, isn't it's it? A, well, it's, I would never denigrate anyone's relationship to their books because, the, you know, it's very personal and, yeah. and I think enormously rich. And I think everyone can have an incredibly, obviously, you know, strong connection to say a Shakespeare folio. But I do find myself drawn to collectors. And I think probably the reverse is more true. Collectors who are interested in more unconventional pathways tend to be drawn to me and to dealers like me who are more open to looking at unusual material or trying to think about ways to organize material outside of, uh, you know, standard collecting practices, um, like being a completist of an author, for instance, um, or going chronologically down a publisher's bibliography or, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. But then again, I would just say, I do that too, and, and have no problem doing it. And, you know, that's another way to organize information and to experience the books. So I always learn something, however I do it. So what are some examples of uh, unusual pathways then? Well, one actually that I haven't actually done yet, but just started this week is that uh, <laughs> this uh, at the Swan Sale this week, the lot number one was a note from Edmund Burke to his bookseller, Dodsley, um, yeah. asking Dodsley to send over one of Burke's recent books. And uh, I wound up buying that on behalf of a customer who uh, is, a, is a big fan of Burke, and I'd alerted him to, to this. Um, but then he and I were talking about interesting historical figures writing to their booksellers. Isn't there a collection there? I mean, isn't there, wouldn't that be yeah. a really fun thing to pursue? Like, that's not a category I had really thought of as a category, but what if it is one? So he went back and found a couple of examples in extra illustrated books that he has, um, you know, just mixed in our, our various people writing their booksellers. And so I think we're going to look for, uh, you know, pr pr primarily 18th century examples of, uh, of cor you know, correspondence between not just writers, but just people of interest and, and their booksellers. So that's the kind of thing that I, you know, I didn't think of that as a collecting area two weeks ago. And today I think of it as a collecting area. And I feel like that's what's fun about this job is that whatever your interest or whatever you become interested in, you can pursue unfettered and, you know, without shame. <laughs> so. It's, I mean, I think a bona fide collector will come up with a new idea once a month or at least that's what I find. I, I, well, I th and I think that's what makes them bona fide collectors in a yeah. way. That's, you know, it's that curiosity and that yeah. openness to, to material. And a way of, you know, thinking, well, how, can I, how can I organize what's out there in a, in a different way? And see something in it that you didn't realize was there. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the fun things about collecting in general is that sometimes, you know, you see something and it's a little bit weird and one of them is just kind of a curiosity and maybe three or four of them are just kind of a curiosity. But if you have a hundred of them, yeah. suddenly it does become very interesting because you do patterns emerge and you get to read all kinds of narratives in it 
that you weren't um, weren't aware of. Um, one of the things that I collect here, just as our house collection down there on that bottom shelf, mm. are uh, American and English publishers' bindings that depict women reading on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, th- none of those books are expensive, no. but having them all together. I mean, I'm always looking for examples of them. It is really interesting because it shows you all kinds of, you know, different ways that domestic space is organized and um, the way, you know, the role that education plays, whether she's a scholarly girl or whether she's doing something bad by reading a novel. Um, you know, there's there's a whole um, story about the social place of reading for women and girls in those in those images. So it's fun couple things the uh, there's a book a book of paintings of people reading yes yes um there are several i think actually because it's a you know it's a it's a a venerable subject yeah um i i like it very much but i have very narrow rules for this collection you know because people are always pitching me you know pictures of you know fairy tale books where you see a woman reading to her children but these these books have to be a woman reading for her own pleasure right. her own interest woman okay. reading for herself um, so she's not being a mom she's actually she's actually the, book. the yeah. book is for her yeah um, so how how did you start this did you go online and just look at all the like you can't search no, you, you can't, can't search it. But you just you sort of look at a lot of images, I guess. You look at a lot of images. Um, I mean, it started because uh, I had bought a couple uh, just spontaneously because I thought they were so pretty, and I mm. responded to the imagery. And then I thought, I wonder if it would be possible to do like a collection of this. Um, and no, it is a little tricky. It often helps to search by publisher, actually, because they did tend to be on sort of standard young girls' novels, kind of. You know, that's that's. Uh, popular fiction, you know, often publishers would put the same image in different colorways on 20 different titles, you know, in the 1880s or 1890s. Mm. So, um, you should talk to Richard Minsky. Uh, Richard Minsky knows about this collection. <laughs> He's um, obviously someone who uh, who knows more about this kind of material than than almost anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm you know still really really learning, mm-hmm. but uh, but it's it's fun because I you know I Instagram them and then people will write me and say I have this mm-hmm. or I, I you know I get I got a text from <laughs> someone in a shop in Paris you know snapping a picture. Do you want this? Is this for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, so one thing that's nice about collecting at this hour is that. If you are working on a project, you can potentially share that project with lots of people you don't even know, yeah. and they can all kind of chip in and yeah. say, like, "Hey, did you notice such and such, or have you been, you know, have you seen this?" Like crowdsourcing, almost. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which I I find really exciting. I think that yeah. one of the things that's most interesting about book collecting at this moment in history is that people are collaborating on collections at a much earlier stage because they can, because mm-hmm. of social media. You can become aware of what someone across the country is doing and what they're getting uh, in a way that was not possible before that. And uh, and as a result, I think it makes for... I, I, like, I like the collaborative aspect. It's not that I don't also like the private obsessive aspect, but mm. I feel like I, you know, there are two sides to my personality. And I like to share things. I like to mm. talk about things. So, mm. um, Well, I think that's a big part of collecting itself is this desire to share. That's certainly what what I have found among collectors and and it's why I enjoy my work mm-hmm. because you get invited into someone's you know sort of sensibility for mm-hmm. a little while and get a sense 
you know, of what interests them and excites them and what they notice that you don't notice or hadn't never noticed before. Mm -hmm. It expands the way that you respond to material. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel really lucky to have met so many really creative and ingenious collectors uh, in my in my life. A really great collection is creative in a way that that is very unique and really inspiring mm -hmm. and uh, the nice thing about them is that you don't have to be enormously wealthy to build a collection that's really interesting and really revelatory and that's something that I feel I, I mean I note I feel like everyone in the trade just needs to hit as hard as they can all the time because the press is so obsessed with prices and with you know auction records and that mm -hmm. kind of thing understandably mm -hmm. because that writes the headline for you mm -hmm. but to make clear that you don't have to to have millions of dollars to have a really interesting collection mm -hmm. and in fact the ones that the collections that are going to be most sought after in the future are probably the ones that are being created right now by really strange eccentric people that no one is paying attention to picking mm -hmm. up material that no one is paying attention to and it's precisely because of that that it's going to wind up being really important for historians well i was in the phillips room at grolier <laughs> isn't that the greatest <laughs> And yeah, it looks like an installation piece. Uh, it, uh, it's Tom, is it Tom, was it Thomas Phillips? I think Thomas Phillips is his closet just it's just, just a, looks like just a, a bunch hoarders of, like yeah, it looks like a bunch of unrolled wallpaper all scrapped <laughs> up. And he these are this was part of his collection, and he collected all sorts of stuff that nobody wanted, and as exactly as you've said his collection has rendered all sorts of interesting detail about uh, about everyday life yeah i've got a collection of publishers histories and they don't cost very much at all sure and that's such a perfect example because that's the kind of thing where i'm sure you can pick those up very cheaply yeah. people don't i try to get them signed them. too and they're still you can you know you can get them for under 50 bucks typically of course yeah um and yet what a great collection that will you know mm. that will be and how excited will some one be to see that in a hundred years to see yeah. all those publishers together signed you know this evidence of of the production of this material it's so exciting the other thing too and you mentioned uh, letters and this idea of ephemera and the unique object it seems that lots of booksellers I'm talking to are saying that this is the direction that the industry, quote unquote, the trade. The trade. Is, yeah, uh, I never use the word industry. This <laughs> yeah. isn't an industry. We're not producing anything. Right, We're just moving right. things around. Is is moving in? Is this this idea that, that this is the only one of its kind? I mean, certainly that's the tack that honey and wax has taken, and I think mm. yeah, most people because it is increasingly difficult to sell books of which there are 20 and 30 extant copies yeah. you know online like mm -hmm. it just is not a remunerative business model at all yeah. um and so to get people's attention yeah. and their business and their loyalty you have to consistently be putting things in front of them that they do not see anywhere else um and on the one hand i love that because it's intellectually much more rewarding than mm. just you know typing another kurt vonnegut novel into the database and mm. like duping it but on the other hand, it's an enormous amount of work, and mm -hmm. uh, and you don't you can't rely on 
duplication in the same way. Um, you know, if you are handling a, a set list of high spots, then when you sell one, you get another one and you tweak the description and you move that one out. Mm -hmm. If you're doing, you know, a sort of complicated archive or an unusual, you know, association copy or something like that, you put all this research into it, you sell it. It's so exciting. But there's not another one. It's not no, like you, you know, no. that labor is now sunk mm -hmm. and yeah. you, you know, you now need to find something else and I'll le learn about that. Mm -hmm. So I certainly feel like for me, um, that is, you know, continues to be a real struggle in terms of managing my time and mm -hmm. finding that balance yeah. um, between handling material that I can catalog very fast because it's completely known material and it's just mm -hmm. a matter of, you know, checking the bibliography and making sure that it's correctly described and, uh, and finding stuff that is often really, really rewarding to work on, but it's not really worth that much. You know, I mean, I you You're can add too value, much effort but and labor right, into it, right? Right. If you you cannot sink an entire day of research no. into something that you're going to sell for two hundred and fifty dollars, yeah. you know, I mean, you just can't. So, hmm. so I I I struggle with it all the time, and I think I would think that most certainly most sole proprietors struggle with it because it's the constant the constant back and forth of, of needing to have unusual, distinctive material, um, but also needing to have just bread and butter stuff coming through mm -hmm. all the time yeah. and how you apportion your very finite time to get it all done. Yeah, it's a bit like the entrepreneur who goes out and has to work to get the business, then she has to actually do it. And while she's doing it, she's not going out and- And getting the business. Certainly, I mean, I would say that this is my eighth year on my own, mm. and uh, it's still something that I am constantly recalibrating and you know rethinking yeah. and tacking right or tacking left um, yeah. to, to you know to make it make it work out. Uh, and I think that's very much the case. It's just sort of a constant hustle. You know, if you're very lucky, if you get a big collection, but then you have to deal with it, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you're not sure. dealing with other things. And yeah. um, so you know, it's. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I haven't solved that problem. I don't know that I ever will. <laughs> right. So from Columbia, you uh, went to Yale, mm -hmm. and your PhD dissertation was on the lecture tours of Henry James and Gertrude Stein. So how did those two differ? Well, you know, I, uh, I. St worked at the Beinecke as a curatorial assistant for Pat Willis, who was then mm. the curator of American literature. And at some point, I had to go down to answer some correspondence inquiry, because this is before email, and yeah. you had to actually write letters to people who wrote in. Mm. Uh, and I wound up looking at these scrapbooks that were in the Beinecke that I would never have looked at on my own, that had been kept by someone chronicling Gertrude Stein's lecture tour of the United States in 1934-1935 and I was just captivated by these scrapbooks and I knew Henry James's work very well Stein much less but Stein is of course a great strength of Yale's collection they have her papers they have Carl Van Vechten they have you know mm -hmm. lots and lots of people around her in her circle and as I was reading up on her lecture tour she said that Henry James was really her only forerunner and I thought that's so strange. What would yeah. he think about that? He would be, I mean, he, you know, of course, Stein was very close with William James, who was her teacher at Harvard, but Henry James never even consented to meet her. He didn't, cons you know, he was not interested in her at all. Um, and 
I wondered what she meant. So it was that kind of curiosity of just thinking like, what could that be? So as I started researching his tour and his book and her tour and her book, I began to think about, you know, the ways in which these were both Americans who expatriated for many decades, mm -hmm. lived abroad, signified in the American imagination, a kind of effete European avant-garde, complicated, no one can understand what they write, they, you know, why do they write well, like this, they're so hard to understand. Not James, though, but... James, well, James, too, absolutely, in the United could States. Under, nobody could understand what he wrote? The, the older he got, no, they could not. Why does he talk like that, those long, circuitous sentences? Why doesn't he just get to the point? What's the plot? We don't mm. understand. Mm. Um, you know, these long, long, long novels yeah, which deal with someone's... Yeah, they're beautiful, but like they were not bestsellers in the United States. Yeah. I mean, he was successful in the very when he was very young with like the American and Portrait of a Lady. But by the time you get to the Golden Bowl and the Ambassadors and the Gold, I mean, he's a joke. You know, I mean, people are literally yeah. like baffled by what is happening. Both of them, of course, were gay, um, or at least I mean, Stein was certainly gay. He wasn't. James out. was was yeah. who knows what James was, yeah. but he was not a uh, conventional heterosexual guy. You know, he was not a manly man. Yeah. Um, just as she was not at all a womanly woman. You know, they both presented in, in different ways. And they both, after years abroad, come back to the United States and travel all the way across the United States, visiting all these places where they had never been or had not been for 20, 30 years, giving lectures, explaining what they were trying to do in their work, you know, trying to explain what their, their sense of what literature is to a crowd that was kind of there in a way to sort of, you know, out of curiosity, but also, you know, a little bit like bafflement. You want to see this like freakish creature who's like landed from Paris or London to talk about, you know, their weird, circular, complicated writing that doesn't seem to be about American themes. Mm. So she said that he was her only real predecessor yeah and, and what in, in the sense that he was trying to explain his literature well she doesn't say in what sense Stein that, never explains anything right I mean she just right. said he was the only one who understood you know what I was doing he was so the only you, one you wanted so, to understand so I wanted to understand I was thought, what in what possible universe could that be true and uh, as I you know sort of looked into parallels I was like even though these are two very very different figures who are not frequently discussed together in mm. fact there are some interesting parallels and I can see why she would see in his writing and in his particular kind of experiments with language, something that appealed to her. And that even though her writing is not at all like, like his writing, yeah, yeah. that she would see something in his practice that would resonate with her and in his position in the person who withdrew from, you know, his like powerful family in the United States mm. to create his own world in mm. Europe. Um, and uh, so ultimately the dissertation was about reading her book on the United States, Everybody's Autobiography, as a kind of revision of the American scene, James's book, you know, looking at the ways in which she picks up on things that he talks about there, but recasts them um, in ways that, you know, sort of point to herself as the avant-garde and as the one who is now leading literature into the future, um, but picking up on a lot of the same observations. And then also just in the background, a kind of, you know, history of literary celebrity in America and the way that people responded very differently to them. I mean, one thing that was funny about it is that Stein was absolutely, of, of the two of them, I mean, as you were saying, completely the more out of mm, the two. Mm -hmm. I mean, she lived with Alice B. Toklas. They lived fairly openly as a couple. And they um, could do that in Paris. Though. And they could do that in Paris. Mm. In the United States, everyone, literally all the papers, I didn't see a single homophobic... I mean, you know, they would 
talk about her, you know, the way she dresses and that kind of thing. But mm. but they were just like her secretary, Alice B. Toklas. Like, completely casual. Whereas James was constantly on the receiving end of really nasty kind of yeah. homophobic yeah, um, insin- yeah, in- insinuations. Mm. Um, although he, did, of course, did not live with a partner and had never had, you know, a male partner in the public eye or anything like that. But it, it was interesting that male homosexuality was in a way much more visible like people were more willing to talk about that or see it well Whereas, and it's also you know, more culpable i think too in in the eyes of society and the law i suppose that's that's probably the case too that it just seems like well even if they are they're just you know it's harmless what could you know that sort of well, and look at the tragedy of Oscar Wilde, speaking of tours of the United States. Well, exactly. And, of course, he's the uh, the figure who was also in the background of the dissertation, um, mm. although he was, of course, not an American originally, no, so it doesn't... But, no. but you know, he was the one who really set the set the tone for the big, splashy American lecture tour. Mm, um, mm. And, uh, and Dickens, of course. Dickens, yes. Dickens mm. was also a big one. Mm. Yeah. So what, have you gone after books that... That uh, obviously you must have re- you've read everything, so you must be interested in acquiring books connected to this. No. Well, you know, I mean, I wrote that dissertation, you know, twenty five years ago. Mm, okay. <laughs> like I've, I've been read a lot since too. Like I'm sure. interested in different things, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, uh, I I continue to really enjoy James and Stein. Neither of whom, honestly, bring a particularly high premium. I mean, neither of them are really in vogue right now, mm-hmm. as far as rare books go. I've sold. Uh, both of them, but they don't move very briskly. Who yeah. does move briskly? Uh, let me think. I mean, I the material that moves fastest out of here in recent years has been material related to education. Literary education, art education, science education, math education. History um, too, no? History too. History too. But, but um, what are you talking but, about? Te- actual textbooks? Or, no. Or um, the philosophy I'm, of education? I'm talking or? well, philosophy of education, but also um, material that speaks to the way that classical literature or canonical ideas in math and science are disseminated broadly. So rather than the high spot first edition of say like Newton's Principia, like say a Victorian book that would explain Newton's theories to young women. Something like that. Mm. Ways that uh, material reaches audiences that it wasn't originally aimed at, but the way it gets disseminated, whether that is actual educational material or things like advertising um, or different elements of graphic design that bring the iconography of, of, you know, sort of high art history into everyday life. The way that people who weren't the original audience of this material eventually come to it and come to understand it. Broader society is now... Right, uh, is now grappling with Freud or grappling with, you know, that kind of thing. And the reason I think that that kind of material is so successful is that it appeals to private collectors who collect the thing in question, um, who already have all the first editions and the sort of, you know, the standard works. They like to see... Yeah, yeah, they have the core of the collection, but then this offers a way to sort of see that material folding out in time, and they like that. And institutions love it. It's fun. It's enjoyable. It's usually very quirky and, you know, sort of surprising, and it tells you something interesting. Institutions love it because it's stuff that's great in the classroom. If you're teaching a text to be like, and here's how you know, uh, an American boy in 1810 might have encountered Plato. Mm. Like, this is how he would have done it. Mm-hmm. You know, he would not have done it through, you know, uh, uh, you know, an Aldine printing. He would have done it this way. And yeah. this is how it would have come to him. And this is how it would have fit into the context of the early national period and the way the Republic was aiming at a kind of classical 
standard for itself. The other thing that's fascinating is looking at how these different texts or presentations, what they exclude, what they include, how they describe indigenous people, for example, or women. And the way that, or the way that changes over time, America, you yeah, know, the, yeah. the way that, I mean, that is a really, so, um, so it's, it's a good institutional cell because it has classroom use mm, professors like mm-hmm, it. You can imagine mm-hmm. people writing dissertations on, you know, you can see the way there's a lot, um, and it doesn't tend to be enormously expensive. Yeah. So it's the kind of thing that, that people feel like, oh, it's a thousand dollars. Like, okay, you know, I could see lots of people can sort of get in on it at that, yeah. at that level. And, and that's a category. It's not a single author, but that kind of material is something that, I am buying really aggressively because it sells fast. And, and where do you get it from? eBay? Um, well, eBay is not a bad source, actually, for some of it. But I also, you know, I'm always you go, looking, you look everywhere. I go, I'm looking everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go to the Chelsea Fair in two weeks. Um, New York is a great place to look at books with all the auctions and, you know, all the shops. Not that many shops, though, are there or are there? Well, not as many as there used to be. Not as many but... as there used to be. And also, like for this kind of material often like antique shops are not a bad place to look you know what i mean like yeah, sort of yeah. I mean, it just gets thrown into boxes thrift of shops, paper too. and thrift, do thrift shops i don't rarely do i go to thrift shops you know sort of with a mission although yeah. if i happen to be in a thrift shop of course i look at everything yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but uh but you know i mean i do try to keep alert and and i do look online too i mean always trying to reverse engineer searches like if i were if i didn't know what this was how would i describe it and then type that in. Uh, yes, see, yes, yes, yes. You know? I was trying to sell this as fast as I could. Right, but I, I, if someone didn't know what it was, they might yeah. think that it was this. And yeah, are there true. any examples described <laughs> as this out there? Um, <laughs> be, well, because, you know, so much of book selling, of course, is, you know, it, in some respects, of course, things have prices. But for the most part, you know, you decide what the price is, yeah. and you determine that by what your reputation is and what you typically bring to the material that you sell. And, and, and I guess how much and, effort and, and labor you and put how much into how it. much effort and labor you put yeah. into it. And um, you know, if uh, if you're able to consistently write descriptions that elevate things yeah. and bring out aspects of them that make them attractive to people, yeah. then you you can you know often mark things up mm-hmm. considerably, and people will pay it because they weren't going to find that, and they know that they don't have the time to do it so you wanted to be a professor and then in your early 30s now was this a crisis was it a big crisis or was this just a okay i'm gonna let go of this now and i've i've seen another field that i'm i'm quite interested in i mean i would say that it probably was a crisis in a sense uh, in the sense that uh you know i wanted to be an english professor from the time i was 16 years old when i first read sound and the fury Mm. um you know and i pursued it with a really really dogged type a eldest child kind of you know thing and i you know and i just kept just kept hitting the milestones, you know, yeah. and and, mm-hmm. and um, certainly on paper it looked fantastic. But I really did not like academic writing, and I thought yes. uh, that that would change. Full of jargon, or, and is that it? Well, yeah, I, it's not. It wasn't even the jargon which like I could make my peace with. But I just I wasn't interested in performing that way all the time. Like um, always publishing. Always, for the always, sake always of constantly publishing. publishing for the sake of publishing. Constantly yeah. placing things for the sake of placing things. Constantly. Yeah. Um, you know, just jockeying in this very small kind of closed system. I, I, it always felt like the price I was paying to do what I liked, which was to read and to teach and to talk about literature. And increasingly, I began to feel like it was kind of a high price and that I wasn't getting to like it any better. 
Um, mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know, when you're young, you don't really know because you haven't really done that much. And I thought, I guess everyone just has like a big part of their work that they just hate and just really hate and yeah. just never want to do at all. And although, of course, that, I mean, there's some truth to that. It became really crystal clear in my postdoc when I had this wonderful postdoc at Princeton and a very light teaching load. And I was there to write this book for which I had a contract. And I was, you know, it was like time to do this. And here I was and everything was, I didn't have a child yet. Everything was in place. You have a beautiful office. You have a research budget. Like just sit down and write this book. And I just didn't write it. And I felt that was the only time. You just couldn't get yourself to do it? I just could not do it. I just literally just could not do it. I took a billion notes. I read a billion books, but like I just could not write the book. And (laughs) I thought... No one really knows on the outside that I'm not writing it because it kind of looks like I'm busy and, you know, I'm still publishing things. So it feels like, but there was the only time in my entire life that I felt in bad faith. Like I just, I just felt like a fraud because I felt like I'm not, I'm supposed to be doing something and I'm just not doing it. You, I don't. You tried to figure out why you weren't yeah, doing I just, it. Yeah, I just don't want to do it. Like I just yeah. don't want to. And thought if you don't want to do it this much. Yeah. Under these perfect laboratory conditions, there are no conditions under which you're going to do this. You know, you're not going to get a tenure track job and start teaching three classes every semester and then do this. Like, that's mm. not going to happen. Like, you would either, you'd be doing it right now if you wanted to do it and you don't. Um, and so, but, you know, I also was at that point, you know, in my early 30s and I had a PhD and uh, yeah, I had no other, yeah. yeah, but I had no other, you know, I wasn't sure what else to do. And then I realized that I had always had this real interest in rare books and manuscripts. And that actually had always been on the periphery of my life, but never at the center. So Mm. I went to Barnes & Noble and I bought a um, Resumes for Dummies because I had never (laughs) written a resume. I only had a CV. But I took it back and I thought I need to do like a skills-based resume. And I need to put all of the rare book and manuscript material at the center Mm -hmm. and sort of move all the academic stuff sort of to the side. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a version of that um, and I wound up working for Bowman for seven years. So it it all worked out um, (laughs) amazingly enough. Yeah, and I guess their hiring standards were pretty high, were they? I gotta say, getting hired at Bowman was no joke. It took three interviews. Um, I, you know, I, cause I, you know, thought, well, essentially like I'm essentially going to become a shop girl. So it shouldn't really be that that's hard. What, right? That's but, what reading the, reading your bio, that's what I thought. Right, is but this uh, is quite a step down well, you for know, a PhD. Uh, certainly holder. that's, that's certainly how my dissertation advisor felt. But, <laughs> but you know, I, uh, the truth is though, it was hard to get that job. And I learned an enormous amount on that job. It was not an easy job. The sense of intellectual liberation I felt in my first year as a rare book dealer when I was just literally reading John Carter and, you know, just the basic bibliographies at night and just memorizing, you know, just the points on books and reading all this material that, because, you know, I was really good on the literature, but I remember in my final interview, David Bowman was like, so someone wants to build a collection of Western Americana. What are the 10 titles you feel should be in that. And I was like, I literally do not know any. I like Lewis and Clark. Like, I don't mm. know what. Yeah. I, I'm not did, interested in the frontier. The way to do that is just simply to pick up the phone and call Bill Reese. Well, yes, that is. Um, and we did have a hotline to Bill Reese for occasions. <laughs> but, but um, 
but he was like, you know, so you're going to need to read a little, you know, read some Western Americana. Let's like get you, you know, yeah. get you some bibliographies. Let's get you like, you know, oriented. And similarly, you know, what would you do if someone was interested in economics? I was yeah. like, I literally could not tell you what you would do. Like yeah. Keynes? I don't know. So, so you, it was, you needed to educate yourself uh, about the, the high points first? Yeah. Well, you needed to, to know the, the top across the, you yeah. know, across yeah. the way. And I thought yeah. I had a pretty solid liberal arts education and mm. I did, but you know, I had always been specialized and always really literary. Yeah. Um, and so it was incredibly liberating and interesting to suddenly, you know, realize that like I had to know a lot about polar exploration yeah. and it, it was time to start like boning up on that. Mm -hmm. um, I got really, really good at Trivial Pursuit there for a few years. Like yeah. I just, you know, I just suddenly became after years of, you know, academically drilling down into like the most narrow veins suddenly mm -hmm. to just, just, you know, be on the floor of a gallery like that. That's so bustling where people are just walking in all the time and yeah. being like, I'm interested in Civil War hospitals. And you're like, well, here are some books that you should think about. You know, yeah, <laughs> that yeah, kind of like yeah. getting into that that sort of um, model. It was enormously um, freeing. Mm. And I felt actually but like... But also daunting, no? I mean, well, da daunting, all that well, daunting, but, you know, knowledge that you have to keep in your head. It's true, but I didn't have to write articles about it. So that was like a huge yeah. dream. And I didn't have to grade anybody on it. You know, I just had to, <laughs> to learn it, you know, yeah. to assimilate it for myself. And that so actually was fun. Areas? And you say Arctic, you say Civil War, you say right. Western. Uh, well, you know, I mean, Bowman does, uh, you know, I mean, they do landmark books in all fields is their, yeah. you know, yeah. is their, their tagline. Yeah. And that's pretty much, you know, what it is for every field. There's, um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, of course, there's, there's interesting quirky material on the side, but there's like a steady core that is always present. Yeah. Um, so uh, we did a lot of... You know classic literature you know sort of top 100 you know lists that kind of thing mm -hmm. we did a lot of travel and exploration we did a lot of classic americana you know federalist papers that kind of thing a lot of economics um you know we mm -hmm. were here in new york so there were definitely a, you know a lot of that um a lot of military history tons of churchill um tons yeah. of civil war stuff you know that kind of thing we did a fair amount of botanical ornith uh, ornithography yeah uh, ornithology rather pretty plate books mm -hmm. plants birds trees children's books always mm -hmm. especially around the holidays you know all mm -hmm. the classic children's books so you would get really good at you know oz and alice in wonderland and you know all of the Pooh books you know that kind of thing mm -hmm. just those were constantly in and out in and out all day and so it was a great place to learn because by the time I'd been there a few years, I just really had a very, you know, I, I could just scout a fair so fast, you know, for, for that kind of material. Mm -hmm. Like, I just knew mm -hmm. what the spines of the expensive books were, and like, could go to them <laughs> super fast. Right. Um, so in that sense, it was good. And obviously, you need to know what a good deal is, too. And, well, you need to know what a good deal is, you know, and what condition is, yeah. and how, you know, what, what kind of what kind of material you're really looking for. Mm -hmm. it, so what's the most important thing you learned at, uh, during your time there? Besides all of the book knowledge, mm -hmm. which was huge, I mean, yeah. and which I can't even quantify because mm -hmm. it's the basis for what, I mean, all of the stuff I'd done up until then was, was important too, but just that incredibly intense, you know, selling hundreds and thousands of really like well-described books over, you know, over and over and over again and getting to the point where you could just 
look at them very quickly and say, this is why this is important. This is selling point of this. This is selling point of that. That kind of thing. Um, besides that, I mean, mm. what Bowman taught me was how incredibly detail-oriented you have to be to be successful in business. Um, I mean, that's really what I took from it. I don't think I could have... What does that mean? Uh, I, I mean, the attention to customers and customer service, to keeping good records on every book and every customer, mm -hmm. to thinking um, long-term about plans for customers. Um, that, I think, would have really... I don't think I would have been able to succeed at Honey and Wax if I hadn't seen the way that they had developed systems to just take care of the people who bought from them. Mm. Get to know them get to, as collectors. Get as... to know them as collectors, follow up, make sure that their experience is always good, right? Make sure that they feel completely taken care of and that there's complete trust and that they feel comfortable sending something back, that they feel comfortable. The importance of that relationship yeah. as sort of the core of what's driving the business, not any individual sale, but about having someone who is, who wants to work with you. Because and I mean, I, someone like Bowman, I mean, they sell the books at a premium, right? I, I mean, it's not like, it's that. not like nobody goes to Bowman thinking like, oh, I'm just going you know, to get the, like, the, you no, know, get the no. cheapest copy. That's, what I was like, say. that's you, not going to happen. But yeah. people, why do people pay it then? You know, they pay it because they develop a relationship with their bookseller there, mm -hmm. their signed bookseller who sort of shepherds them. And they come to enjoy that connection yeah. and to rely on it. It's like a team together. You're exactly. You're, you're all working on this. something together. Yeah. And that, you know, when people come into the gallery, they're greeted and they feel like mm. it's like a respite from, you know, the rest of like all the awful things they have to do during the day that, you know, it's this, you know, this place where like yeah. they can talk for, you know, 20 minutes about Shackleton and feel like refreshed and move on <laughs> with their, you know, with their life. So um, I took so much actually away from from that about mm -hmm. thinking long term about what it is you're actually what it is you're actually doing for people i mean yes mm -hmm. you're bringing them books and that is really important mm -hmm. but you are also engaging with them you know as a collaborator in something that should be exciting and fun and inspiring mm -hmm. and like really something that they look forward to all mm -hmm. the time and, and that a joyful you, part of their life yeah too. that and it should be a joyful part you should be communicating your joy in the mm -hmm. books and if you mm -hmm. can't do that then like you have to get off the sales floor mm -hmm. <laughs> like you know yeah. because yeah. it's like you can't <laughs> you're not gonna you're not gonna do it it's almost the opposite of the, the stereotype of a crusty old uh, antiquarian book dealer well and that's like what was you know i mean driven home to us constantly like yeah. you don't have the luxury to treat people like yeah. that like yeah. you know you your job is to you know make everyone even like the tourist from the midwest who's clearly not going to buy a single thing like make them feel really happy that they came because mm. maybe later they will you know yeah. they'll remember it or they'll talk about it so yeah i, I learned a lot a lot working there and I'm really happy to be working for myself and dealing with these books in the way that I want to but I also found it you know hard to leave because it was mm -hmm. a very stable steady supported place to work and plus felt, you had a, a child you were raising on your own I had a, a child I was raising on my own and um, you know the, it was a, a for those years of her childhood it was you know an enormous comfort to mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, to have a, a job that I felt completely confident had my back and, you know, mm -hmm, that afforded mm -hmm. us a comfortable life. So I was, yeah. That's tough 
raising a child on your own. That's well. I mean, she does have a father who you know who lives here in the city too. She okay. lives with me, and I have primary custody. But yeah, okay. you know, but um, okay, okay. You know, so I mean, it's not. Uh, I see. Okay. You know, uh, I mean, I'm. You know, she's always lived with me, and so I'm a single parent in in that sense. But uh, but I wouldn't want to discount the fact that she, that's good yeah she has another parent that's good yeah let's yeah. say a word for uh, no. in favor of him yes yeah. absolutely okay. absolutely good <laughs> okay so still i, I do have to make enough money to live though <laughs> so, what's that that's still I, I do have to make enough money to live yeah like, so that's that that is a concern so really it was a, a wonderful apprenticeship then that's that's how I think of it, yeah, um, you know, yeah. and and feel you know really lucky to have had it. So in two thousand and eleven, you you established Honey and Wax. So you're a productive little bee then. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So yeah, I started Honey and Wax. Um, you where, know, in my did, apartment. Where did it come from? So when I um, worked at Bowman, I. <laughs> Uh, was at a book fair one year and I was looking at this 19th century grammar book. In there, there was the line, use books as bees use flowers, um, which was an example of analogy or something. Mm. And um, I thought it was so great that I wrote it down in my little notebook. I wish I'd bought the book now, but mm. I, didn't, mm. I didn't realize. Um, but yeah, I that's part of wrote, the lore of Yeah, the no, I got it. Now company. I got to find this book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> use books as bees use flowers. I always, I just really liked it because it yeah. speaks to what I like about books and reading and communities of collectors and cross-pollination and mm. the idea that you're mm. taking things from all these different places and you're making new things out yeah. of them. And it's this endlessly renewable resource, these books that, you know, keep bringing, keep inspiring, keep, um, you know, giving new things out into the world. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I always really liked that. Uh, when I was thinking of doing my, you know, of leaving, um, I knew I didn't want to be O'Donnell rare books. You know, I tried sort of various things, nothing really felt right. And then I came back to that quote and I just thought, well, how do bees use flowers? They make honey and wax. Yeah. And I thought honey and wax booksellers would actually be like, that's great. And it suggests, you know, whole iconography, like it's easy to imagine how it's going to look. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> so, um, so that, that was how I, uh, that was how I came to it. Okay. And, uh. So yeah. you, you don't collect uh, books on bees. I don't collect. I'm constantly being quoted books yeah. on beekeeping. You know, people are like, would you like this? <laughs> so I'm just like, no, that's not actually what I do. But thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for playing. But it's you know, fascinating. No, bees are fascinating. Bees so, are fascinating. And, and honey is really good for you. And it... No, it's like, you know, sweetness and light, the, mm. you know, the candles and the, the honey. Like, it's all, no, it's true. And what is really funny is that after I started, all these people were like, I got the reference because honey and wax and the, the idea of, you know, bees and books is all through classical and modern literature. So mm -hmm. um, everyone just assumed that I was referring to Horace or I was referring to Jonathan Swift or I was referring to, and I just let everyone think that I'm referring yeah. to whatever it is that they think yeah. I'm referring to. Sure. Um, but it was actually a, that grammar book. <laughs> okay. You make the point that it takes time to become an expert. Uh, we've just kind of gone through that period. Yeah, right? I mean, I don't, I don't see any any way around it. Who do you um, think's the 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 most knowledgeable bookseller you've ever met? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, Bill Reese would obviously have been a very strong candidate for that um, yeah. in terms of that like encyclopedic. Did you hang quality. out there when you were in New Haven? No, I didn't. No. Um, okay. I mean, you know, he was in and out of the Beinecke, of course, all the time. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really know him until I became a book dealer. 
but uh, but I learned a lot from him just watching. Great catalogs too. Yeah. Fantastic catalogs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean the the booksellers who have been you know who certainly were most inspirational to me and in, you know in wanting to start Honey and Wax were people like um, mostly Brits, Amanda Hall and uh, Simon Beatty and Sophie Schneiderman, um, people who had smaller operations but were incredibly sort of thoughtful and knowledgeable about what they were interested in mm. and wrote these catalogs that were so, you know, sort of historically interesting and gave context for material I wasn't familiar with. And, yeah. Um, I really they love writing the story. I think that's a big Yeah, I mean, this, you know, yeah, I would say narrative booksellers, mm. you know, who were mm -hmm. telling stories about these these books you know but in terms of I mean obviously when you say who's the most knowledgeable I mean you would have to go with someone senior in the sense that, yeah you know like I think I think, I think I mean I think James Jaffe is incredible you know for what he does I would trust him on any point of literary history and his taste is so impeccable mm. um, so yeah I, I he's someone I greatly greatly admire but then I also admire you know, someone like Jim Cummins, who um, would never talk about himself as like someone, you know, I mean, he doesn't like style himself as like an intellectual dealer or anything like that. Mm. But I mean, he literally has just handled so many millions of books that he he recognizes them like without, and almost doesn't even have to look at them. Like at this point, you know, he just, like, he has completely, the yeah, he is yeah. completely like just all of book knowledge is assimilated in his bones at this point. And he just really, um, and you know, I, um, when I was a teenager, I worked at the Strand, yeah. so I, you know, I used to watch Fred Bass yeah. sorting the books, and that was always a, you know, a fun thing to watch because he just did that so fast, and I didn't understand what I was looking at. I didn't understand what I was seeing. You know, mm. we were looking at the same objects, obviously, but he saw something completely different in all of them than I did, yeah. and that was really the first time I uh, grasped that being a bookseller is not so much about knowing the text of what you're selling although you know that can be very important but it's about having a feel for these as objects in a historical context and in a market mm. and knowing that without having to look it up yeah you know yeah um and uh so that was that was really instructive i love the third floor on the strand it's uh it's one of these places where you can find some really good deals it's true because there's just so much stuff going through there yeah, like they can yeah. you know they don't have time to to deal with yeah everything book selling combines some of the most rewarding aspects of research and teaching plus there's no grading although i would take issue with that and say that you have to grade books you do have to grade books but books don't complain they don't come to your office hours in tears to talk about their medical school ambitions. Okay. Okay, so what are the most rewarding aspects of the, the research and the teaching that you find in book selling? I mean, there's nothing I like better than picking up something that I don't entirely understand, but mm -hmm. think is probably interesting, doing the work on it, discovering that it's more interesting than I thought it was, learning something that I didn't know before and then writing it up and sharing that with a curator or a collector or um, some random person at a fair who comes into the booth that or sharing it on Instagram, sharing it, you know, just with the public, you know, look at this thing, look mm. what I found, yeah. look at this. Um, isn't this interesting? That to me is, is really, I mean, it's what makes my job fun. It's what, mm. what I enjoy. I wish I could do it all day every day and didn't also have to do like QuickBooks and packing and stuff like that. You talk about the challenge of keeping both books and cash flowing. 
Yes. Um, sometimes it seems like one is flowing, but the other is kind of stalled, you know, then it flips. So, uh, I mean, the reason I'm going to Chelsea in two weeks is that I just realized I'm running out of books. You know, I've been working on this catalog and I haven't been buying and we've got to get some books in here. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, um, so what's your stock usually typically? Oh, I mean, I have a tiny, a tiny stock. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, usually I have about 200 books on hand, uh, about 100 of which are, like, catalogued. But the thing about, you know, my bot model is so extremely skewed. Like, books, most of the books that I handle never go online. They're never, you know, they just are going directly to where they're going. Mm -hmm. So by having a really high churn, I'm able to keep stock quite low. Like, that's fine, yeah. you know. But if it gets out of whack... Like the stock is now actually too low; it needs to be higher. So, I'm gonna um, gonna go spend some money. <laughs> One of the most successful dealers in Canada is Attic Books. Marvin, he buys a ton of stuff, and there's always turnover in the in the shop. That's what I love as a as a patron. He's in London, Ontario, which is a ways away from me, but even online every three or four weeks i check there's new stuff there all the time i mean that's what you want i mean definitely i try as much as i can you know at each fair that i go to to have a fresh booth like mm. i don't want people saying oh i've already seen that i yeah. saw that last time i saw yeah. the last time i'm really trying to make sure that people always have something new and shiny to look at <laughs> i think if you can't provide that it does begin to uh, feel a little bit like a museum, mm -hmm. you know, like here is my permanent collection of unsaleable material. <laughs> <laughs> That's priced too high. It's priced too high <laughs> that I won't compromise on. Okay, just winding down here. Speaking about prices, what do you think, you talked about, you know, the fact that uh, Henry James, for example, isn't in fashion right now. So is now a good time to buy him? I mean, I would I would say in general, I just discourage speculation of that kind for in sure. general. I think people but, should but people buy the books. Looking, they're always looking for a deal. For a they deal. are. Um, so that's you know, what I'm asking. What's what's a good you know, if you like English literature or if you'd like if you're interested in what you carry, what's a good deal these days? I think I'm going to decline to answer it because I feel like there's no way to answer it that doesn't appear to be giving a recommendation that I I just don't agree with. Like, I just don't think that's why people should buy. And I don't think anyone knows. Okay. I think if it were easy to know that, then everyone would do it. But no one does because no one knows. Okay, so. but what about just certain things that you think have more value than, than, than is currently recognized? Than, than is currently recognized that, is, that are underpriced in that sense. I think the one thing I would pay attention to or that I would find interesting in books that a lot of people don't pay as much attention to are the circumstances of their publication. So there are lots and lots of 19th century writers who published things weirdly. No, I don't. I, even, even as I'm saying it, though, I don't really believe it, so I'm not going to say it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't think I have a recommendation on that. And I just, yeah, I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> it's not a recommendation, but, but, uh, but let's, let's move to, uh, what do you think are some of the most beautiful books that have ever been made? Oh, well, certainly as an antiquarian, I have great fondness for 
the early days of printing, even though I don't handle very much in the way of incunables. But mm. for me, the romance of Aldous, that sort of, you know, that mashup between the person who could create the Hypnerotomachia, you know, this incredibly gorgeous, gorgeous book, but who also could produce the pocket classics that are the yeah. forerunners of, you know, all the books I read in college, all the pocket <laughs> paperback editions. I mean, he, to me, unites everything that I love about books, both the incredible material gorgeousness of the production and also the democratic inspirational utility, utility yeah. mm. the the wide-ranging seeds all over the place dropping all over Europe you know just sending this text out and out there into the mm. world I mean I've handled you know Aldeans from time to time I've never bought one for myself uh, because I don't really collect in that way but if uh, I ever want to treat myself to a special antiquarian book I think it would probably be an Aldean mm. um, you know I would love to have a little piece of Aldous in my house because uh, his his work really inspires me and, mm -hmm. and speaks to a lot of what I love about books and the book trade. My uh, impression of, of Honey and Wax was that you specialized in books by women. A lot of people seem to think that. Um, you, we do certainly handle quite a few, but if you look at our catalogs, actually it's, it's, not, it's not predominant. I think it's getting more so, actually. The new catalog I'm working on now does have a lot of women, and I think maybe it's because I'm being offered a lot of women's material these days because people are under the impression that that's my specialty. Yeah. And, of course, I'm happy to buy interesting material, whoever created it. So. But speaking of undervalued, the women authors don't get the same prices that it's male authors. You know, it's complicated, but it's certainly true that uh, there are no... I mean, certainly among, for instance, like modern writers mm. of literature, mm. women don't don't command the the same prices as men. There are very few. Um, you know, Jane Austen, you yeah, know, who... the Brontes. Or, or, yeah, yeah. Um, the Brontes. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a really small number. So um, there's an opportunity there. there. Well, there's an opportunity. Um, I mean, I feel like there are other people who are working that angle, um, you know, in a, in a really disciplined way, like Alison Devers at the Second Shelf in yeah. London, who is really making it in, a, a, I think, a very positive way, a, you know, a sort of public question about why, you know, why we, why we value work, have valued work differently. Is it always on aesthetic merit? It's even primarily on aesthetic merit, not necessarily. It's, you know, it has a lot to do with the moment that that material came out and what was perceived to be important and what was perceived to be trivial in those moments. And in retrospect, it doesn't always look like that was the right call. I, you know, am certainly interested in women and, and also children and working people and immigrants, people who um, were not the intended audience often of a lot of the stuff that I, I handle, but who made it their own or transformed it in some way. So in that sense, I, I think it's quite um, true. And I am, the Honey and Wax Prize focuses on women collectors in an attempt to, exactly. um, you know, to draw attention to uh, the disparity in attendance at book fairs and in the book collecting world in general, yeah, which I think is is changing, and rightly so. I think it, it's, it's odd because, particularly with fiction, women overwhelmingly are the readers. 
and Over, yet they're not the collectors. They're not the collectors. Is there um, any reason for that? I mean, I think there are lots of reasons for it. Um, I mean, women tend to collect most things, not just books, less than men, and that's because yeah. they tend to have less money. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's yeah. you know one of one of you know, the the obvious. But I think it's it's also true that the book world has uh, traditionally been a kind of insular and. Uh, in many ways, male-dominated or mm. even exclusive space. Forbidding. Um, forbidding. Yeah. Uh, and that a lot of women who were avid readers, and actually often avid collectors, just didn't identify as collectors because yeah. they didn't see themselves as being a part of that world or a part of that project. And so a lot of what Honey and Wax and lots of other younger dealers are trying to do as we enter into, you know, just a very different kind of space and market is to, to say there is not one particular model of book collecting and then everyone else falls short of that. Mm -hmm. You know, there are multiple ways to think about collecting and in truth, what would make my job much more interesting is if people would collect not so much the obvious books but less obvious material um, and I would like to be receiving lists of less obvious material all the time from other dealers. Like, I would like to be seeing a lot more um, unusual material and that only happens if collectors and dealers kind of expand their horizons a bit yeah. and get more curious about things that haven't always you know whose value they don't already understand if they were to pursue that more more actively so I care a lot about that is it Jason Rovito yes Does that ring a Jason, bell? yeah Jason Rovito um, cloud books yes he doing um, some interesting things. Yeah, Jason always has interesting, interesting stuff. Um, you know, and he's very interested in the avant-garde, but also mm -hmm. in all kinds of. I mean, did he not do a recent thing on prison? Yes. And yeah, yeah. and incarceration. Yeah. Um, yeah, he has he has a really really interesting sensibility. Um, I, you know, I think that there's. Uh, I think people are increasingly aware of the way that private collectors shape the institutional landscape. That these great institutional collections were not built by the institutions for the most part. They're mm -hmm. based on a bedrock of private collections that came into the institution and then became the scaffolding yeah. on which they built this, uh, this accomplishment. And so private collectors are really important in terms of it's not just a, you know, a personal, um, I, you know, kind of thing. It's something that has real sort of historical implications. And, and I think libraries should be supporting collectors to a much greater extent than they are. And I, I, well, and I think libraries are sort of waking up to the fact, I think that there's been for a long time a kind of silly, clannish, like private versus institutional, and one's good and the other's, you know, that kind of yeah, thing. And yeah. that's ridiculous because it's all part of the same ecosystem mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. strengthening any part of it strengthens all the parts of it. Yeah. Um, I, without private collectors working hard to salvage material that right now institutions aren't interested in institutions yeah. will never get that material yeah. like they've got to start really reaching out to those people now and bringing that bringing that stuff in mm. um and so i part of what i think about constantly is just how to make people who aren't already inside this very cozy insular space of the Grolier and the ABA and, you know, our little mm -hmm. clannish, um, you know, very comfortable but not particularly diverse world, yeah. um, understand that they, I mean, not just that it would be fun for them to do this or something, but that actually, like, 
They are 100% empowered, licensed. They should do it. They should not be discouraged by anything that anyone says to them. You know, they should just go get the material. Just go get it. Just mm -hmm. get it. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you don't succeed at first with particular people, who cares? Like, people need to take control <laughs> and, like, command of this material and really... Sorry, you missed your... Oh, what, sorry. What are you talking about exactly? Um, I would like to see a much broader swath of the population feel empowered to collect and to think of themselves as archivists and historians and people really thinking about the future, not feel like they're being silly for, or, you Pro know. Problem is though, they're often rejected whenever uh, they approach a library. The library rejects them all. Of course they are. Of course so they are. So how are they supposed to, to feel? Well, they, of course, I mean, I'm not saying that their feelings are not amply justified by the, the treatment <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that they are likely to have received. But as someone who cares a lot about having a more representative historical record in institutions and in mm. the trade, it's only private collectors who are going to mm. who are going to drive that engine. So they have to be supported and encouraged in whatever way we can think of to encourage them. And I certainly haven't found like the magic bullet for it yet. But the prize is one way of trying to yeah. recognize and people and encourage people. For that. Oh. Really, you should. Well, the, the collectors should be congratulated for the amazing stuff that they're doing, you know, often with no encouragement mm -hmm. until this prize. So I want to, yeah. you know, um, I just want there to be more points of encouragement where people really feel like it's something that they, not just that, that they can do, but that they should do, that, mm. they, that they're making a contribution to people they don't even know you know, who maybe aren't even born yet. You know, it's something that I, I care about a lot. And sometimes when I see what seems to be just the extremely narrow tunnel vision of certain kinds of institutional, certain kinds of institutional priorities, it makes me sad because I think so much is being lost right now. Like so much could be collected, could be saved, could be could be celebrated and it's not being because the the gatekeepers don't understand its value. So I obviously want to change the gatekeeping, but I also feel like part of what we just have to say is don't worry about the gatekeepers at all. Like mm. literally pay no attention to yeah. people who are telling you that what you care about isn't worth anything. Like just don't pay attention, just do it anyway. That's a beautiful message. Thank you. Oh, sure. Very last thing, who won the latest uh, prize and what were they collecting? The latest prize was won by a cartoonist here in New York City, mm -hmm. um, Emily Forster, who uh, started collecting fan-made comics, um, comics that participate in fictional universes that are, you know, established, published, copyrighted properties, but made by fans and distributed on underground channels. Um, so not, no one is, you know, Marvel's not getting any money from this, like all the way, no one, like these are things that fans created for themselves and for other fans to trade. Um, this is biggest in Japan, which has an entire, you know, really evolved culture of this trading, but also in the United States too, at things like Comic-Con and that sort of thing, people doing self-published zines that, you know, sort of interact in different ways with these different universes and remix them and bring characters together in ways that are, would never be sanctioned by the official owners of this property and that kind of thing. And so mm -hmm. she had put together a collection of hundreds of these and wrote a really interesting 
essay, which is you can read in its entirety on our website. There's a link to her winning application about you know the the difference between art that is made for um, you know commercial production and art that is made purely for sort of private consumption or for you know private trade and the way that this has enabled a lot of people who don't traditionally have a voice in those communities to sort of enter in and uh, and participate even though they're not getting paid um, they're also not being controlled so they have a freedom within this material that they didn't have before what we loved about that collection was that it would be virtually impossible to reproduce like you couldn't mm. go online and just buy all that yeah, material yeah. you had to actually like go to those comic cons go to those like weird underground shops in japan like you had to go scout this material but we also thought that is an archive that you know right now she's keeping because she's a working cartoonist and she loves it and that's mm. what she collects but that later on someday we'll have enormous like you can imagine how many dissertations could be written on what she has put together like how much material is is there how many stories to be teased out mm. of of that um we just thought it was a great kind of mix of um you know, interesting material that you don't usually see at book fairs put together and talked about in an interesting way by someone who has thought a lot about what that material is and has, you know, made some of it herself. So, uh, so yeah, that was who won this year. How can people get a hold of you? Oh, just go to honeyandwaxbooks.com. I'm right there. I'm easy, easy to find. <laughs> well, thank you for being so uh, forthcoming. <laughs> Thanks. That probably means indiscreet. <laughs> I've been talking to Heather O'Donnell, who is the, how do you like to be referred to as a proprietor or is that to? Uh, I, I think you could just say Heather O'Donnell, owner of Honey and Wax Booksellers. Very good. Thanks again. Thank you very much for having me.